So um, oxytocin is the good feeling of social support. And in the animal world, you can let down your guard when you're with your herd. When you leave the herd, your oxytocin falls and you feel threatened, which motivates you to go back to the herd, despite the fact that animals truly get on each other's nerves and their horns poke each other and their (laughs) hooves trample each other's grass. This week, new guest on the show, Loretta Bruning, is going to explain to us what all those feel-good chemicals are doing in our body and why they're there in the first place. This is a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. Stay tuned. I'm going to keep this short. First, thank you for listening. If you're a regular listener, I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. This will help others discover us. Also, if you like the podcast, I highly recommend visiting our website, hitchedmag.com, which is updated daily with new content and where you will find thousands of articles available anytime. Lastly, I understand that not everything we talk about applies to everyone. However, I am confident that if you go to hitchmag.com and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, that you will find at least one and probably more pieces of information each week that will help your marriage thrive. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Steve Cooper, editor-in-chief of HitchedMag.com. I am very excited because we have a new guest on the podcast today, uh, Loretta Bruning. Welcome to the show. Hi. Nice to be here. It is very nice to have you on and to to meet you. So uh, before we get into it, I do want to give a little background information on you and feel free to fill in any gaps that I may miss here. Um, so you are a the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, uh, the author of Habits of a Healthy Brain. Habits of a Happy Brain. Oh, I'm, it's That's right in front of me too. I'm, I'm everyone reading Everyone does that. <laughs> uh, yes. Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin. Uh, And you have just this week released a new book, Tame Your Anxiety. Um, You are also a professor emerita of management at Cal State University East Bay. And your many, many books, um, I went on Amazon and looked and it was just like, how many books have you written? Well, frankly, um, uh, three of them started out as self-published, and then um, commercial publishers later bought them. And so the self-published version gets retired, but Amazon still carries it because of the used market. So gotcha. it it's inflated by three. <laughs> But it's many. Um, and so I, I uh, recommend uh, everybody go and check it out. Uh, you can get more information about Loretta at her website, innermammalinstitute.org. Um, and I will include um, that link in the show notes so you can find it there as well. Um, okay, so uh, today we are going to talk about how our happy chemicals are designed to do a job and not just flow through our body and our brain for just no reason. Um, 
I, we have talked a lot about um, the neuroscience and the chemicals that flow through people's bodies on this show before, and so I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, we hear a lot about the chemicals that flow through the brain, and so I guess I wanted to start off by asking you, what's the biggest misconception that you come across most often? Well, I love that you started with the biggest one, which is that your happy chemicals should flow all the time for no reason. Otherwise, there's something wrong with you. So let's add to that. Um, It would be nice if the doctor could fix it if they don't surge all the time. But since this is not a realistic expectation, then the quest for um, happiness from the doctor is is often disappointing. Um, But then I'll add to that, uh, people love to talk about nature versus nurture, and the technology for studying genes has recently exploded. So people have come to blame everything on genes. Mm. And what's left out in this nature versus nurture is that our neural pathways are built from early experience. So whatever triggered my dopamine when I was young built the neural pathways that trigger my dopamine today. Whatever triggered my oxytocin when I was young, et cetera, et cetera. So these become the super highways of your brain without any conscious intent. And this is what we're all doing. And it's not really discussed that much. I, I love that because you're right. I, it's, (laughs) it's funny too. So I have, um, a, a, a long family history of firefighters and this whole nature versus nurture and, and, and yeah. the genes that you have versus um, <laughs> what like the, your surroundings, what, how that played a role in things. And so, for example, I like, there's been, um, heart attacks and, and high blood pressure and things like that in my family. And I've had this conversation with my brother, who's a, a, a chief now. And he's like, you know, we, we just have this in our family. And I'm like, well, yeah, but <laughs> look at the lifestyle that they lived. Like their lifestyle yeah. was yes. totally like sucking in black smoke and being yes. woken up out of a startle all those times. I'm like, yeah, Absolutely. I get it. Like it's, it runs in the family, but does it really run in the family? Like, I'm not quite sure. So, well, I absolutely agree with you, but I, I also sort of applaud that you tackled that with him because people are so convinced of their theories that it's very hard to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we do this podcast, right? So we can, uh, dive into some of these things. Um, So are there key chemical players our listeners uh, should know about or have a cursory understanding of? Yeah, so here's a simple introduction to the brain chemicals that make us feel good. They're inherited from earlier animals, and they evolved to do a job not to make you happy for no reason, and it's very easy to see what the job is in animals, and then you can say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. So um, dopamine is released when... uh, a mammal sees a reward. And the reward that got most of our attention for most of human history and animal history is food, because it took so much constant effort to find enough food to survive. So we're all designed to respond when we see a new resource, and then the response soon ends. And then you have to find more of a reward to enjoy more of the joy and excitement of dopamine. So obviously, the the human part of your brain knows that you can't stimulate it by just eating another box of cookies. Mm -hmm. But that's what your... 
That's why we have to work so hard to find other ways to stimulate our dopamine so we don't just do it that way. So um, oxytocin is the good feeling of social support. And in the animal world, you can let down your guard when you're with your herd. When you leave the herd, your oxytocin falls and you feel threatened, which motivates you to go back to the herd, despite the fact that animals truly get on each other's nerves and their horns poke each other and their <laughs> hooves trample each other's grass. So again, we can. I'll, I'm just going very quickly and yeah, then we no, can go more great. into these. So serotonin. Um, Um, This is not at all what one hears from the serotonin industry, but um, animals are extremely hierarchical. Mammals are hierarchical in their groups. And when you gain the one-up position, it stimulates your serotonin. And here's a simple example. If I see a piece of fruit and it's near a bigger individual, then that individual might bite me for grabbing for it, which no one likes to think about animals, but was... a whole century of research on this and lots of nature videos, but it's all politically incorrect, so you don't hear it anymore. Mm. So I'm going to starve to death if I never reach for a piece of food. And so I look for a critter who's smaller than me, and I, I look for the banana near the smaller critter, and my mammal brain is constantly comparing me to others and rewarding me with serotonin when I see myself in the one-up position. And all of this is magnified many-fold when I'm not just grabbing for food, but I'm grabbing for mating opportunity. And needless to say, I'm not saying that people should do that, but it's that feeling of this is an opportunity. And then when I see that I'm in the position of strength, serotonin is that good feeling of confidence. Mm, That's excellent. Now, endorphin is the one that we're not designed to chase. Endorphin is an opioid. It masks pain. It helps an injured animal escape from a predator by um, putting in its full exertion, even when it's grossly injured. And we only release it when we're in physical pain. It's not meant to be on all the time. It creates a feeling of effectively what we perceive as ecstasy, um, not the drug ecstasy, that's right. oxytocin, but it, it uh, euphor- I, I meant to say euphoric. It, it creates a euphoric feeling which masks pain, and an animal only gets it for a short time because in a few minutes, either it has escaped the predator and it now needs to feel its pain to protect its injuries, or it's just dead. Hmm. So in the human world, if if you would um, inflict pain on yourself in order to feel it, that would be a very bad long-run strategy, and I'm obviously not advocating (laughs) that. Um, But laughing um, triggers a little bit because it jiggles certain muscles that don't get worked out much. And so I think it's very interesting that love involves all four of these in one way or another, particularly new love, and the laughing is so easy to see. Mm, That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, that was, by the way, that was an excellent breakdown of the four. I love that. Um, so it would be great if we were all the same in the same happy mental space at the same time, but that's not how life works. So with that being said, how could or should you respond when your spouse is in a slump, but you're not necessarily there with them? 
Mm, that's a great question. So first, we have to decide whether the partner perceives themselves to be in a slump, or this is my editorial commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, do, do they think they have a problem, or is it that I have a problem? And that's really, really hard, because then we could divide that in the new matrix, which is, um, I've been honest with myself, and I'm not just projecting onto him and I want him to be happy like me and I want him to share my interests or her. But but in good conscience, I really do think they're suffering. And it's not just that I want them to go to a party with me, but, but I really do think that they're suffering. So obviously, a person has to be really honest with themselves first before they... Um, take charge of someone else's mental health, because that's not likely to get a good reaction, even though you may think you have good intentions. So then the next step is um, mirror neurons are neurons that help us um, uh, learn, um, imitate, and mirror uh, uh, from the behavior of others. We mirror the behavior of others. And um, one good way is to try to mirror positive behavior. So it may be that you're you're mirroring negativity and you don't like when you see it in the other person, but possibly you're doing that yourself. Hmm. But then one more like really giant strategy, to put it in simplistic terms, is the brain is always learning from rewards. And sometimes we inadvertently reward bad behavior. So if you see someone in a slump and you may be extra nice to them in one way or another, and their brain is getting the message, even though they're not consciously trying to manipulate you. So it takes a lot of courage to avoid rewarding um, negative behavior and really um, have enough respect for them to just say, I'm going to give them space and focus on, I have to make myself happy and let them work it out. So that I have a quick question about that because that last one feels like a fine line that you have to yeah and where um being nice to them might come across as a reward so i mean i feel like there has to be some place for compassion there but you're saying it doesn't need to be that um directed toward them so you you recommended giving them space is that really the is that the is that the recommendation there Um, Well, once again, we could divide it into, are they just in a sad slump or are they in a slump where they're mistreating you? So that's another thing that involves a lot of contemplation and uh, Mm self-honesty. I would say that you could be um, compassionate to them, and especially initially, but if, if your compassion takes the the form of, uh, I hate to use chores as an example because that can be overdone, but let's say you're just carrying their weight and smiling at bad treatment and looking the other way at things that they're doing that are unhealthy, that becomes enabling. Mm. And it's really interesting to know that Enabling cannot exist in the state of nature. An animal would just be wiped out. The animals don't enable each other. Now, obviously, you want to be nice to a person who's having um, a short-run problem. And we all know, though, if 
if you try to help them solve the problem, that often they're not appreciative and even resentful. So that's why all of these things are a fine line. And, and then to get to the worst case scenario, what if they stay in the slump forever and you've tried all these various things and you get to make the decision of whether you want to be permanently with a person who's in a slump? So these are all very difficult, very painful. And it really starts, though, with being very honest with yourself to make sure that you're not just um, projecting onto the person. Mm, okay. So um, not enabling, not projecting, are there other things that you shouldn't do? Um, well, how do you know when you're enabling, projecting, whatever um, is understanding your own circuits. It's like, oh, so my bias, my lens, my responses were wired from my early experience and my partner's bias is from their experience. Now, I have um, tried hard to talk to my husband about this and um, he doesn't necessarily appreciate me analyzing his early experience. And yet it's so easy to see in other people that they are repeating past experience and it's harder to see in ourselves. So sometimes some reciprocity can work. Like um, you can ask a person's permission, you know, would you be willing to talk with me about early experiences that were parallel to this because our early circuits have so much power. And in exchange, I will offer to be open about my early experiences that are parallel to this scenario. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one of the last questions I have for you is, so what should you do or what should you know about your own mental health when you're consulting with your spouse about where they are? Yeah, so that <laughs> I jump the gun on these. These early circuits are uh -huh. built from past experience, and it's not accusatory to say that a person is running on old circuits. In a lot of um, psychology groups, they, they say that in an accusatory way. So people should know that this is universal. We have no choice but to run on our early pathways because of a substance called myelin, which is what is like the insulation on a wire. It insulates your neurons and makes them operate 100 times faster. So it's like the difference between speaking your native language and learning a foreign language. So we're all operating our emotional system in a way that's equivalent to the way we operate our native language. And as you know how hard it is to learn a new language in adulthood, that's how hard it is to learn new responses. Mm -hmm. And so we can learn new responses, but we can't just insult someone for running on their native language because that's how the brain is designed to work. That is, I've, I haven't heard that analogy before, but that is such a great understanding of it. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I wish this got more attention and it gets overlooked, partly because this over dichotomizing of nature and nurture, everyone wants to blame nurture on the conscious messages of society, but that's not what it is. Nurture is your actual individual experiences. So if you're if your brother, you know, hit you and took your cookie, then nobody 
that's not anyone's intentional nurture, but that's your life experience. You are wired with that expectation that if you lower your guard, someone's going to hit you and take your cookie. Mm -hmm. And you can't really study babies. So this whole wiring from experience has gotten way overlooked. Although um, Piaget studied babies in the 60s, and that's where I got a lot of my education. Well, it's interesting, too, because... In, in that um, example that you just gave, a lot of people would look and say that these kids were raised in the same house, but as you yes. point out, the experience was completely different. One was taking the cookie and one was losing the cookie. Exactly. And it's important to know that the one who is taking the cookie does not get a free pass because now they enter the adult world with the expectation that this is the way to get cookies. So often it's the person who was beat up that ends up having a more responsible and rewarding adult life. Right, right. So uh, this gets back to the dopamine. This is how you... Yes. <laughs> finding, yes. finding the cookies. Um, yes. This was um, fascinating and interesting, and I wanted to see if you had anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap this episode up. Mm, yeah, well, so what I tell everyone, take responsibility for your own dopamine, take responsibility for your own serotonin, oxytocin, the whole idea that your partner should make you happy. And then when they don't, then it's like, oh, it must be something wrong with them or wrong with their relationship. It's very important to know that dopamine is the chase aspect of love. It's that sense that it's a new reward. And after a while, just looking at your partner is not going to stimulate it. And if you chase that forever, you're just going to have an endless series of starting over. So each person in a relationship has to take responsibility for finding excitement in their life in new ways that are healthy, that don't involve constant new infatuations and don't involve a constant new box of cookies. So that takes away a lot of the primal things off the list. And it's a challenge, but it's each individual's responsibility. Mm, I love that. Those are, um, I think those are very uh, excellent words to end on. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, Loretta. It has been a pleasure and I hope to do this again with you sometime in the future. Thanks so much. I'd love to. Uh, so before we go, I do want to remind that you have been listening to Loretta Bruning, who is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. She is the author of many books, as I've mentioned. Um, her recent ones are Habits of a Happy Brain. Got it right that time. And uh, just released Tame Your Anxiety. You can get more information at her website, innermammalinstitute.org. I will include uh, that uh, URL in the show notes. And of course, you can find this information and much more on our website, hitchedmag.com, where we have thousands of articles, hundreds of podcasts, a newsletter, and much, much more. So uh, until next time, that's going to do it for us. Take care, everybody. We're on top of the world tonight.